Well, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Father, you have filled this world and filled the Scriptures with your acts, with descriptions of your character, and we can know you through them. But God, you have also privileged us, humble creatures, to reveal to us also your mind and your heart in passages like we find today. Thank you, Lord, for revealing your innermost being to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to see him and to share his mind this morning. In his name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself lost in a dark wood. This is how Dante begins his divine comedy, his account of the cosmic journey that he takes down into the pits of hell and then up to the soaring heights of heaven. It's midway through his life that this journey begins. And I think that midwayness is significant. Now, I don't know if I'm midway through my own life, though I do feel like I've had enough existential crises to say I'm at least spiritually middle-aged, and you may or may not be midway through your life, but midway is a relative term, isn't it? It depends on what you count as your starting place and your, your ending point, and so I think it's fair to say much like it's always five o'clock somewhere, that we're always midway upon the journey of our life in some sense or another. Maybe you're midway through your childhood. Maybe you're midway through your teenage years, midway through your journey into adulthood. Maybe you're midway into your lifelong marriage or midway upon the noble journey of parenting. Maybe you're midway through even your aged years, midway through your retirement Maybe you're just midway through a long night of grief. At least you hope you're midway. And midway is rarely our favorite place to be. I think of running. Uh, I've never run a marathon. I've never run even a half marathon, unlike my wife who has run one even at two months pregnant. Uh, but but I've, I've run respectable distances. I've run, let's say, even six miles. And, and on a six-mile run, it's miles three and four that are just the worst. Because midway, when you're midway through something, the shine and the splendor of the beginning has worn off, but you don't yet feel that growing pleasure of the final stretch. Midway is the place of trudging. Midway is the place of plodding, of thinking about quitting, of gritting your teeth and pressing on. And yet, that means that midway is where the action is. The real action. Midway is where the metal is tested, where the men are separated from the boys and the women from the girls, where characters are forged in the fires of trial. Midway is the place of maturation. It's the place where we can pass from immaturity to maturity. And so midway is the place of those real virtues, faith and hope and love. It's where they can grow. And so the midway matters. And it struck me in reading Philippians this week that Paul's letters are always written to a church that's midway, midway upon the journey of their Christian discipleship. 
And this makes sense because they're pastoral letters, after all. Paul has already evangelized these places. He's already set up churches and entrusted them to priests and deacons and bishops. And yet, because Paul is a great bishop, he never loses contact with the churches that he's helped to evangelize into existence. And so Paul writes to them midway upon their journey. He writes to different churches for different reasons. Sometimes things are in chaos and they need a firm apostolic word. Sometimes Paul is raising money for his missionary journeys or for the relief of other Christians. Uh, Sometimes that church is facing persecution, and they need a bolstering word from the apostle who helped to found their church, who first spoke to them the gospel. And so Paul is always writing into midway situations. The churches to which he writes, like the church in Philippi, they need to be reminded of the beauty of the gospel which first saved them, And they need to be exhorted to press on to the reward that will be theirs if they press on in faith and do not fall away. In the same way, a preacher's sermon is almost always to a church that's midway. Because we live in between the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ and his triumphant return. And that puts us smack dab in the midway. And this is very much the case with Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul writes at the beginning, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day, the day when he preached to them the gospel, until now. That is midway. And from the get-go, Paul tells them that he knows that they find themselves in a midway situation. I'm sure of this, Paul writes, that he who began a good work in you will surely bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. Paul saw the beginning of God's work in this church, and he's writing to assure them that God is continuing to work in them and through them until they reach the coming day of Jesus Christ. And that's why his prayer for them, the prayer that we started this series in in chapter 1, it's a prayer for maturity. Paul prays, I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The Philippians are on a journey, as are we, to that day of Christ. And on that day, our works will be tested, and God will be glorified, and our faith will become sight. But until that day, they and we need some equipping and some encouragement for this midway point, because in the meantime, the church at Philippi finds itself facing some midway problems, the kind of problems that a church, even like Christ the King, can expect to face. Now, the letter of Philippi, to the Philippians is light on specifics, but it's clear enough that there are pressures on this church, external pressures and internal pressures, and it's stress-testing this church, and the cracks are beginning to show We don't know exactly who is opposing the Philippians from the outside, but we do know that Paul tells them that God is giving them the gift of suffering for the sake of Christ. Suffering is one of those midway gifts, by the way. There's also internal strife in the church, and that's also mostly ambiguous. We know from chapter 4 that there are at least two important women in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and they're bickering. And bickering in an intense enough way that they deserve a name drop in this letter. And, and it's probably not a conflict of theology, because when it's, when it's theological, Paul's usually ready to get into, the, get into the specifics. Here he doesn't get into those. It's probably just good old-fashioned personal conflict. 
People are starting to take sides. The fact that Paul so strongly calls the Philippian church to stand firm in one spirit and with one mind, strive side by side, suggests that the Philippians are not presently of one spirit and one mind. They are fracturing into factions. And the lack of detail in this letter invites us, I think, cautiously to fill in some of the things that we might face in the midway and to hear Paul admonishing us. So, so does the church today have cultural opponents who look down on our faith, who despise our moral commitments, who view us as the enemy? And is it going to help our faithfulness or our witness if we're divided and bickering in the midst of that? Or think of some internal midway problems. Do I ever get annoyed at the decisions that the vestry or Father Michael makes? Is there tension in the kitchen after fellowship over who cleans and with what kind of attitude they do it? Are you all just a little bit sick of this Father Zach guy and his long-winded sermons? (laughs) These are precisely the kind of trials and tests that we face midway upon the journey of our Christian discipleship. It's when our real character rises to the surface when our better hidden sins and resentments quietly begin to rise and show themselves. And they may seem like trivial details. They may seem like silly little fights that shouldn't really merit an apostle's rebuke. But we're the church. We're the body of Christ on earth. We are the witnesses to the only lasting salvation that God is working in this world. And a house that's divided against itself cannot stand. And even our trivial splits can have drastic, eternal consequences for us and for the world. The church that belongs to Christ must be united in heart and in mind. The church must be in communion. And so Paul is pleading with this church to be united in heart and mind. And so here in chapter 2, Paul breaks out his big guns, his best arguments for why there should be unity in the church. He starts by appealing to God's undeniable love and care, which he knows that this church has experienced at the first youthful blush of their conversion. This is, I believe, an exercise that's often taken up in marriage counseling, where where there's a couple that's struggling, and one of the exercises is to, to call the couple, each one, to remember the joy of the love which first led you to marry this person. Remember the fidelity, the encouragement, the sympathy that you've received from your spouse. Even if it's hard, remember that, because it was there, and let it start to break the shell of resentment or anger or disappointment that now alienates you from your beloved. In the same way, Paul is urging them, and his if statements in verse 1 are more like because statements. He says, I know that you have experienced encouragement in Christ. I know that you felt the love of the Father for you. I know that you've sensed and have acted in a unity that could only come from the Spirit. Do you remember? Do you remember, Philippi? Remember the joy that was yours and let that joy start to shred apart your present conflicts. And then Paul moves and and appeals to his relationship with this church. Complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind and having the same love. If you won't do it for yourselves, do it for me, Paul says. And what a solid pastoral relationship Paul must have with this church that he can make that argument. Imagine Father Michael or myself dropping hints like, it would make us really happy if you would do like X, Y, or Z. <laughs> Paul loves this church, 
And when we love one another, we bear one another's burdens, which means that your sin affects me and my sin affects you. But even more than that, it means that my joy as a priest and Father Michael's joy as a priest and our joy together is only complete if we are united in the joy of Christ Jesus. And then Paul gets practical. If there's any stirring inside you, Philippians, he says, if there's any stirring to to retrieve that unity which you once had and which I long for, here's a place to start. Just stop doing things out of selfish ambition and conceit. Stop all of these sneaky schemes to advance your own position and your own status. And instead, in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. And Paul continues, if you want somewhere even more basic to begin, you know all that time that you spend thinking about yourself? You should, because it's probably most of the time. Take even just a percentage of that and spend it thinking about someone else, anyone else. Look to one other person's interest one time and then build from there. It's remarkably practical advice, but, but Paul doesn't stop with these little ethical suggestions because Paul is not just a community organizer. He's not just trying to put together his perfect little harmonious commune. He's not an influencer posting filtered pictures of the sunset from his prison window with the caption, just be kind. When Paul gets ethical, it's because he's getting theological. And that's why he saves his biggest and his best argument for last. He's going to talk about Jesus. And this is Paul's main point in this passage. Your maturity as a midway Christian And our maturation as a midway Christian community, it depends upon seeing and sharing the character of Christ Jesus. The church takes its character, receives its character, reflects its character of the God who makes it in the first place. In other words, you can strive all you want after communal unity. You can strain to be humble. You can have a whole generational movement of world peace and free love And it's going to collapse and fail every time because we are midway sinners with midway problems. Unity and humility belong only to those with the mind of Christ. And that's precisely what Paul is going to reveal to us. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, and pause right there, Because we will only know the mind of Christ Jesus if we recognize who he is. Paul starts here, Jesus Christ was in the form of God. And that word that he uses for form, morphe, it doesn't doesn't mean like we usually mean form, referring to the outward form of something, its appearance. It's the Greek word for the internal essence of something. Jesus Christ is the form of God. He is, he is God, right? Some overeducated people like to claim that the New Testament never claims that Jesus is actually divine. Those people are what we call fools. Uh, the, the fact of Jesus' divinity is all over this passage, and it's right here in this phrase. Jesus was in the form of God. In fact, verses 6 through 11 of this passage They're so elegant in their composition that many scholars believe Paul actually borrows here, inserts a hymn or a song or a creed that's actually already being used by churches all over the Mediterranean, which would mean that even before Paul is writing this letter from prison and establishing this song as worthy of being in Holy Scripture, people were already worshiping Jesus as God. 
Jesus is God, the form of God, but that's only the beginning of this passage. Jesus was in the form of God, and this is where things get crazy. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, Jesus, the Son of God, is God with all of the powers and the authorities and the privileges which come with being God, which is all of them, by the way, all of the powers and authorities and privileges. He has them all, but he did not think that all of those powers and authorities and privileges were meant only for his own benefit. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be cruelly exploited or selfishly hoarded. Equality with God was not a thing to be greedily grabbed and gobbled. Can you think of any place in Scripture where that sort of thing happens? Where someone considers equality with God and decides to snatch it for himself? This is Adam and Eve in the garden, tempted by the serpent who says, God doesn't want you to eat this fruit because he knows it will make you like him. That is similar to him. You will be as gods, the serpent promises. Just take it. Is this not the very first sin of humanity and the sin which all of our sins continue to echo and repeat Every sin which you commit and which I commit day in and day out is some variation on this theme. We snatch at the things which belong to God. The truth should serve my purposes, you think, and so you lie. My friend or my spouse or my child exists to serve my pleasure and my need, and so you yell or you strike or you make a cutting remark. This world exists for my glory, you think, and so you covet and you cheat and you steal. Day in and day out, we snatch at the honor and the glory and the privilege which belong to God alone. It's kind of pathetic, really, like we could hold divinity for one second with our puny arms and our weak grips. And is it any wonder that until Yahweh begins to reveal himself the the true and triune God begins to reveal his character, is it any wonder that before that revelation, humanity finds itself again and again just worshiping raw power? Zeus is Zeus because he had the power to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted. Marduk was the Babylonian creator because he could make a race of slaves to do his own bidding. The Roman emperors could claim to be divine could claim to be gods because they wielded the power of life and death over pretty much every person on the planet. But Paul is making known here an utterly unique God, a God unlike all of those pretenders, the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ because the one true God, the God who is the true God against all of the impotent pretenders, the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, his very mind, his inmost being, it is not the exploitative exercise of power. It's not that Jesus taught that, that you have to give up all power, that power is bad in itself. The incarnate Jesus taught us that the true and holy exercise of power and authority, the only way to use it rightly is to use it not for the good of oneself, but in love for a beloved. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be snatched. He has become for us a new Adam, an Adam who does not snatch at equality with God, but instead gives himself up in suffering and service and sacrifice. And when he does that, he receives his exaltation from the Father. 
He doesn't reach out and take it. He gives himself away, and then he receives it from the Father. Midway on the journey of our life, God found his beloved creation lost in a dark wood. For we had wandered far from the path of life. And if you've never read the Divine Comedy, the whole thing takes a V-shape, right? Dante descends down into the inferno, hits the very bottom, goes through it, and then is going up the Mount of Purgatory and then ascends to the very heights of heaven. And that path, that V, is this echo of what the Son of God has done, of the journey that he took for us. God the Son, in his matchless love, in his godly power, chooses the path of condescension. He empties himself, Paul says. He comes down to us. And Jesus doesn't condescend as we might to mock, to showboat, to gather material for our new novel. He condescends, he comes down to us in solidarity, in brotherhood, even to the lowest of the creation. He takes the form of a slave. He comes to bind up the brokenhearted, not simply with a decree from above, but as Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus doesn't merely condescend to acknowledge that the poor exist, that the broken masses of men and women exist. He's not the Siddhartha Buddha, right? You know the story of the Buddha who, who passes through the slums outside of his palace so that he can reach his own enlightenment. No, Jesus condescends to walk among us, to share our nature, and also to suffer on our behalf He condescends, the Son of God condescends to suffer the hatred of humanity, their vitriol, to suffer the denial of his dear friends and the rejection of his family. He humbles himself, taking the form of a slave and then humbles himself still further. Jesus submits to humiliation, to nakedness, to torture. He submits to death on a cross. And that's what Jesus, the Son of God, who was in the form of God, that's what he did for you. For you. For us. And for our salvation, he came down from heaven. That's what the God who made the world and everything in it did for you. He was obedient in a suffering that he chose for himself. He laid aside all the power and all the privilege which was rightfully his so that he could offer himself freely to die on your behalf. The mind of Jesus, unlike our minds and the minds of the Philippians, is completely free of selfish ambition and conceit. The humility of Jesus is not that he rejects the power, which is his before the foundation of the world, but that he uses that power rightly in using it to suffer for the sake of others, in counting others more significant than himself. This is the Christian gospel. This is the good news for all the world, that the God whom we just prayed to and proclaimed as holy, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, still delights in his heart of hearts and his mind of minds to show mercy to his beloved creatures. Jesus enters our midway world, this world whose innocence has been scuppered by sin and which has no hope of arriving at its perfect end, and he saves it and sets it on a course of recreation, and he does it by his humility and by his obedience and by his willed suffering. And the Father who, who superintends all of this, who sends the Son. He sees all of this, and he is pleased. He's pleased to vindicate this 
act of his son. He's pleased to affirm this act of sacrifice. And so the father raises the son from the dead. And that raising, I would say that the rise of Jesus is meteoric, because that's what people say. But meteors don't shine this bright and don't go this high, right? Jesus, Jesus comes up from the very depth, the pit of hell and suffering, and rises all the way to his rightful place at the right hand of the father, where he reigns now as Lord of all. And he will come again, and so, and so the Father has given him the name that is above every name, the name that belongs to the only true God. Jesus Christ is Lord. Why does Paul say all of this? How does he expect the Philippians to respond to this beautiful, soaring piece of theology? How, how does God expect us to respond to having heard the mind of God? I think we're supposed to start by just being gobsmacked with gratitude that the actual God who created and rules all things, is not Zeus, is not Marduk, is not the ubermensch of ubermensches. Jesus Christ has made manifest, has shown us the true character of the true God, and that character is not what we would have expected. God is not just the raw exercise of power. He's not just self-advantage to the uttermost degree. God in his inmost being is willing to forego his divine privilege to exercise his matchless power through sacrifice, self-sacrifice. He's willing to suffer loss for your gain because he loves you. And we can just delight and revel in that for a moment. This morning, Paul has shown us the mind, the heart of God, and it's a mind and heart that acts in love for you. But Paul has also said that this mind of Christ is the mind that he wants and expects you to have, me to have. Have this mind among yourselves. Christ Jesus is our exemplar, our beacon. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you belong to his body, the church, then you're also expected to share Christ's mind. You too are expected to say no to selfish ambition and conceit. You're expected to count others as more significant than yourself. And, and let me pause here and offer just a quick word of caution, because we are very bad moralizers, we humans. We're tempted to take the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then boil it down to, okay, if I'm more humble, God will like me more. That's not it, right? That's not it. Jesus is the world's great example of humility, but you don't just follow his example by striving in your own power to be more like him. He's not just a moral exemplar. What you need to realize, and I need to realize, what we all need to realize is that as we work out our salvation, that's what Paul says in verses 13 and 14, as we work out our salvation, as you live through this midway season between your baptism and the general resurrection, it is God who is at work within you to will and to work according to his good purposes. So you do strive. Discipleship isn't passive. You don't just sit back and wait. You're midway through the journey, remember, and midway is the place of maturation. It's the place of struggle. It's the place of striving, but you don't strive of your own power, and you don't strive of even your own volition. You strive as one who belongs to Christ Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you. So you, my brothers and my sisters, take Paul at his word and his command. Deny your selfish ambition. Deny your conceit. Count others more significant than yourselves. But strive to do that knowing that God himself provides the power to obey what he commands. 
God himself provides the power to obey what he commands. He commands it, and then he gives you the grace to do it. So pray for grace, and then obey your Lord in the Spirit's power. And as you do so, your life is going to start to look like Jesus' life. The pattern that we've seen, it's going to look like condescension and suffering for the sake of another. It's going to look like using the power that God has entrusted to you because he has given you power. He's given you talent. He's given you authority in your sphere of life, and he's given it to you not so that you can use it to exploit others. He's given it to you so that you can use it to serve others, to empty yourself, to pour yourself out for the sake of the world and the church. We shouldn't want it any other way. Paul has said it already in this letter. To live is Christ. Your life is Christ. It will be in the pattern of Christ, that V-shape. There is no life in Christ that is not lived by the power of the Spirit being transformed into the likeness of Christ. He, God, that is, God is making you into the image of the Son. And he's doing it by calling you to live in the same pattern that the Son did, emptying yourself in love and obedience. Paul says in Romans that if we share with Christ a death like his, we will surely be united with him in a resurrection like his. And here in Philippians, he tells us that if we live in the pattern of the humility of Jesus, we shall also be exalted with him on the last day. And in the meantime, here in the midway of the journey of our lives, let us set our mind on the mind of Christ, strive in the power of the Spirit to live as Christ lived, and all to the glory of God the Father. Amen.